Hey, girls, remember that time that John Wesley did not want to start a new denomination? Welcome to Remember That Time, an historical podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Webb. And I'm your host, Anna Webb, and this is a podcast where two sisters totally geek out about our favorite moments in history. And as you may have noticed, that was a different voice when we started recording. (laughs) And that is because we have our first guest host today. Yes, we do. And it's our dad. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hello. Oh my gosh. Everybody, welcome Joe Webb to the podcast. Yay. Yay. It is so cool to be on the podcast, and I'm honored to be your first guest. Yeah. Happy to have I'm you. Um, before we get into to the gig of the whole thing, um, would you like a drink update? Yes, of course. Okay. Today I'm drinking spiced apple cider from Trader Joe's, not a sponsor, um, out of my butterbeer souvenir mug from the Harry Potter theme park. I'm drinking, um, you guessed it, water. <laughs> I was taking a drink when you said it. <laughs> Dad, do you have a beverage? Yes, I, I, I am also drinking water from my one.org um, environmentally friendly um, water container. Okay, thing. Bono. Fancy. Okay. Fancy. You bet. <laughs> All right, Bono. It's, Bono is the, does the thing. I know. Okay. <laughs> I enjoyed that. Um, I, listeners, uh, you may remember that we tend to talk a lot about uh, the Methodist Church on this podcast. Unintentionally. <laughs> it just comes up yeah. a lot. Our dad is here to, to tell us all about the founder of that church, John Wesley. Yeah, John Wesley is a fascinating dude. And as I am um, not only a Methodist, but also a Methodist deacon, uh, I have spent a lot of time reading and studying about our friend, Mr. Wesley, and his many exploits uh, in the world, um, in, in both in history and religion, which are actually quite intertwined to the point yeah. where you cannot separate them. Yeah. Yep. I see a statue of him every day of my life, so I'm so excited. As did I for four to, years. Yeah. To learn all about him. <laughs> You, you have that huge statue of Wesley there at West Virginia mm-hmm. Wesleyan College. Um, where I went to seminary at Asbury College, they had a life-size statue of John Wesley. And he was about a hot five foot nothing, if that. Um, <laughs> so so nearly sorry. everyone towers over John Wesley <laughs> when you stand next to the statue. So the, the one on uh, the campus of my alma mater and Amanda's current college, you're saying is bigger than life-size? Yes. Oh, it's far bigger. Not not only is it set up on a pedestal, but it is actually just bigger than John Wesley ever dreamed of being. Maybe that's why everybody thinks it's Jesus, even though it's periodly inappropriate, <laughs> just like aggressively so. And it says Wesleyan right above his head. It on says the his name underneath of him, <laughs> but people just think it's Jesus. Oh, man. Wesley would be mortified uh, if people thought that he was actually Jesus. Well, you know. In, in fact, one of the things that John Wesley was known for saying was, um, follow me as you will, but follow Christ, something along those lines. You might want to cut that out because I didn't get the I didn't get the quote exactly right. <laughs> I thought oh, I knew oh, it please. off the top of my head and then I forgot it as I tried to say it. So. If we cut out every quote that we got wrong, there would be no podcast. <laughs> okay, so John Wesley was born on June 28, 1703. He was the 15th child born to Samuel and Susanna Wesley in Epworth in England. 15? 15. Uh, (laughs) 15 children. Susanna, yeah. Susanna actually bore 19 children, (gasps) um, but only nine lived beyond infancy. Okay. Oh, wow. wow. Ouch. Yeah. We we thought that all all of Henry's wives had it rough, man. Susanna... (laughs) Well, at least she wasn't beheaded. Yeah. Um, we, we'll talk a little bit about Susanna. She is, um, she is, was far before her time um, mm. in a lot of ways. So she, she's a fascinating character in her own right. Um, so John's father, Samuel, was the rector, uh, the preacher at Epworth Church 
um, which was a Church of England congregation in the town of Epworth. We know all about that. <laughs> yeah, and and Susanna was the daughter of her father was actually what they called a dissenter, you know, because the Church of England was huh. the state church. Um, but there were Protestant dissenters, people who were kind of separatists from the Church of England, and that was her dad. And um, so that might have been a little bit of foreboding for what John's life might become. Huh. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. So um, I should probably also throw out a little bit of a disclaimer that even though I've studied Wesley a lot, and I have many, many books on my bookshelf about John Wesley <laughs> and his life, um, I pulled a lot of these notes from Wikipedia because I couldn't remember the dates that Hello. were associated with things. So. Listen, that's um, just how it be. Well, you know, we just, we know Wikipedia is not always the most reliable source, but I think <laughs> most of this stuff is pretty close to correct, and I feel comfortable enough using it's it. It's always a good place to start. That's that's just my disclaimer. So, because if any of my um, Wesleyan nerd friends call me out on anything that's inaccurate, <laughs> that's my excuse, and I'm sticking to it. All right. Blame the internet. Okay. <laughs> so, growing up, uh, John Wesley was educated at home with all of his siblings by their mother, um, which was not uncommon in that time for kids, especially at a young age, um, to not attend a school. They were educated at home. So all of the children, including the girls, um, were taught how to read and write as soon as they could walk and talk. That was the very first thing. Yes, absolutely. I like Susanna. (laughs) Susanna was before her time in many, many ways. Yes. So all of the children were expected to become proficient in Latin and Greek, uh, and they were mentored, or they were uh, expected to learn to memorize large portions of the New Testament. And then Susanna would examine each child before the midday meal and before evening prayers um, to make sure they were learning their lessons correctly. And then um, one evening each week, she would interview each child individually for the purpose of intensive spiritual instruction. That is a lot. All of the phrasing there is very interesting to me. She would interview them. Like, that's very interesting. Yeah, so she would sit down with them one-on-one and, um, you know, quiz them on their knowledge of the New Testament and how they were understanding it. Um, to help help them grow in their spirituality. I like the idea of her conducting an interview, though, like more like a TV interview where she sits down across from the child at a slightly odd <laughs> angle, and she <laughs> she like holds a note cards in her hand that you know have almost nothing on them, and she's just like, <laughs> "So, thank you for joining me today. Um, it's great to see. I hope you're doing well. You look great." Um, and John is like, this is my room. Like, <laughs> I live here. <laughs> so, yes, yes, that's good stuff. So um, uh, one, of the, one of the pivotal moments in John Wesley's life was uh, on February 9th, 1708. Wesley was five years old. Um, and there was a house fire at the rectory, the house where they all lived. And it was, it was late at night, sometime after 11 o'clock. The roof caught on fire. And then sparks started to fall down into the children's beds. Um, and so somebody out on the street started yelling, fire, fire, fire. And all of them, all of the family managed to get out. The, the John or um, Samuel and Susanna were able to, to get the kids all out, except for John. Uh, John was stranded on an upper floor uh, and all the stairs were on fire. He couldn't get out. The roof was about to collapse. Um, but he was lifted out of the upper floor by some bystanders. Uh, who were standing on each other's shoulders to get up and to get him out. That was a pivotal moment for both for him and for Susanna. Susanna um, is said to have claimed that John survived as, and the quote was that she used was a brand plucked out of the fire, which was a quote from Zechariah chapter three, verse two. I'm sorry. How short was this house? Well, I mean, (laughs) you know. (laughs) I'm sorry. Is that a weird takeaway? (laughs) No, I mean. I had a similar thought. (laughs) Okay, thank you. (laughs) Some of this may be legend. We don't know. Um, You know, stories are told and and grow. I just really like the idea of two men, two kids in a trench coat style trying to save. (laughs) In a trench coat. Gotta get them out. Yeah, so 
But, you know, from that moment on, Susanna was convinced that John had been rescued by God for some special purpose. And John himself, you know, became convinced because his mom would tell that story. Um, that, you know, it was really tied very tightly to his sense of identity. Um, it like, also, go ahead. That's like when people now are like, well, I have to become famous because my mom went to a psychic when I was um, when she was still pregnant with me, and the psychic told her that I was going to be uh, known all over the world and maybe very famous. So I have to become famous. You know what I mean? Self fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Yes, yeah, self fulfilling prophecies. It it could be what it was, but it also had probably had an effect on John later in his life, um, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later. But John, for most of his adult life, had an inordinate fear of death, like completely like everybody's afraid to die. But Wesley's fear of death was completely irrational. Um, and, and so a lot of folks have said that, you know, that experience when he was five years old may have had something to do with that. It's possible. Probably. Probably. Yeah. yeah. Like uh, what's her name in Drowning and then she drowned. Natalie Wood? Yeah. That yeah. was a yeah. poll I wasn't ready for. <laughs> well, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> That is so true. That is so true. So when Wesley was 11 years old, um, he was sent off to a a boarding school, which, again, was very common uh, in that time for kids that age. Uh, So he went to Charterhouse School. uh, And then in 1720, when he graduated from the boarding school, he enrolled at Christ Church, Oxford. So Christ Church was a part of Oxford University. And that's where Wesley got his, his he, he got a bachelor's degree there uh, and eventually got a master's degree there. So that's where he got a lot of his theological education was at Christ Church. It was a very prestigious place to go. It still is a very prestigious place to go. So in, in 1727, he earned his master's degree. Uh, and then right after that, he returned to Epworth. Uh, his father asked him to come back to Epworth to help him uh, as the curate. Uh, which was like the assistant priest for a, a church in, in a nearby town called Root, which was spelled W-R-O-O-T. Uh, and so yeah, he was, I enjoy that. It's very yeah, English. Yeah. Very English. So um, Wesley sort of pastored that church under his father's tutelage for about a year. Uh, and then he returned to Oxford. He was ordained as a priest in the Church of England in 1728. And he returned to Oxford to teach in 1729. I did not know he taught at Oxford. Yeah, yeah, he was he was a fellow, right? So you get a fellowship, <laughs> um, which is you know we still do that with with teachers today. You become a fellow yeah. in some field or the other. So that's I was what, really tickled. That's what by, he was. I was really tickled by Amanda's giggle just there. She like found <laughs> it really funny for some reason. Well, we had a fellow a couple weeks ago, and I found it equally delightful, <laughs> but I can't remember what it was. That's I right. Just, I like, remember when, listening to that episode. Yes. Was it a was it a jolly good one? He was a jolly good fellow. Thank you. Thank you. John might not have been described that way. Um, So (laughs) John was um, back in Epworth helping his father, his younger brother, Charles, um, came to Oxford and went to Christ Church. And while Charles was there, he and some other folks um, founded this thing called the Holy Club. And it was a club. Yeah. Yeah. And it was. It was really just, you know, it was a small group. It was a bunch of people getting together, trying to um, do spiritual formation and um, trying to find a way to live, you know, a a life that would please God and all of that. But did they have matching T-shirts or a handshake? Or a pin. (laughs) Oh, you know, there is. If they had a a secret handshake, it was very secret because I have never heard (laughs) any. I hope they did. But they could have been that good at it. I also really hope they could have been that good at it. Yeah, I hope they did too. So when John came back to Oxford, he he joined Charles's Holy Club and then he became the leader of the club. Uh, And another fellow uh, named George Whitfield, who was a very famous um, Calvinist uh, evangelist and eventually became really. Uh, instrumental figure in the Great Awakening in America, mm, yes. in, in the in the early years of the United States. Uh, Whitfield was a member of that club, so he and John uh, were around each other a lot, and they had they had an interesting relationship. George Whitfield was widely known to be one of the very best preachers in England, um, and he he's the one that eventually convinced 
Wesley to preach outdoors to folks in the fields and the towns. Whitfield had been doing that for a while, but Whitfield always came back and said, you know, he may have been the better preacher, but John Wesley was the one who could organize people. Uh, and that was really Wesley's claim to fame. And we'll get into some of that organization um, here in yep. just a little bit. <laughs> yep. Because it's, it's kind big, of a big yep. deal. It's kind of a big deal. So the Holy Club, you know, this was a time in England when um, church attendance was way down. Um, people were not really into religion all that much. And the reason for that was that the Church of England had become very elitist. It was really only for the wealthy landowners and lords and ladies and dukes and duchesses and folks like that um, to attend church. So the common folk um, really didn't have a whole lot to do with it. And even a lot of the students at Oxford, you know, that was they were very academic and very intellectual. Uh, and so they they really um, they really razzed on the Wesleys and their buddies, the Holy Club. Um, Drag them. <laughs> I had to do it. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, so they were very, they had these very strict regimented routines with um, prayer and Bible study and uh, the Eucharist or communion and fasting. They took, they took the Eucharist once a week, which was more than most folks, even in the churches did. Uh, they fasted every Wednesday and every Friday. And so uh, a lot of their other fellow students would make fun of them by, they called them Bible moths. Um, I love you know, that. Like the way a moth <laughs> is attracted to a flame, these guys were attracted to the Bible, and and later they were called Methodists because of their strict methods that they used for everything. And John kind of turned that around and said, "You know what? I know they intended that as an insult, but it actually is a really good description of who we are." And so they kind of the just went with it. That happened to all kinds of early religious movements that happened to people all the time where somebody called them something that was meant to be mean and they were like well that's our name now well that even the term christians um mm -hmm. you know in the in the early church people that was they, it, it literally meant little christs uh and it was people <laughs> were making fun of them for thinking that they were you know somehow special or um mm. or being like jesus or whatever and but the name caught on and folks just reclaimed it and said, yep, that's that's who we, that's actually exactly who we want to be. So Nailed it. You, you got can it call in us one. that and we'll you take it. You got it, it in yeah. one, guys. Thank you so much. So um, Wesley was uh, very, very influenced by the German pietist movement. Uh, the pietists were they were sort of what we would now kind of think of as mystics, not so much in like a you know, hyper-spiritual way. They were just folks who were seeking an experiential knowledge uh, of God's presence and of the existence of Jesus uh, in, in their life, in a spiritual kind of way. So they, they would do a lot of kind of meditative practices, a lot of um, monasteries, right? You know, the, the monks and the nuns and folks like that um, would have been pietists, right? So piety just means, you know, kind of seeking holiness. And so Wesley was really influenced by them because he had, again, because he had this, this inordinate fear of death. Part of his fear of death was that he never felt that he was assured of salvation. And, and in his time, the theological understanding was really um, all about, you know, will you go to heaven when you die? And so that was one of the reasons he was terrified was because he never felt that he was fully assured, even though he you know, grew up the son of a preacher man uh, and <laughs> learned everything theologically he could possibly learn and, you know, was a, 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 a Bible moth <laughs> Methodist mm -hmm. and all of that. Um, he was he was constantly, constantly, constantly seeking after some way to know for sure that he was saved. Uh, so the pietist movement with its kind of experiential focus was very attractive to him. And so he started reading uh, people like Thomas Akempis, who was one of the leaders of that movement, and really is one of the sort of founding fathers of um, of the um, I just lost the word of the um, yep yes mystic mysticist movement yes there it is <laughs> sorry about all the editing you're gonna that's have to do with that, that's fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, but he he was also John Wesley was a really really bright person I mean you don't get to Oxford if you're not really intelligent so he was very right. very or well read if you don't have a lot of money there is also that yeah well and he didn't I mean you know but that's what I'm saying was, it's like one or the other yeah yeah so uh he was he was extremely well read he he read everything he could get his hands on he studied other religions and 
Uh, so he had a really kind of generous idea of what religion should be. But but again, you know, because of that fear of death, um, he just kept it kept driving him deeper and deeper into trying to find some experience where he could say, OK, you know, I, I'm set now. Everything's good. So in October of 1735, John and Charles Wesley uh, decided to go to America. So they sailed from England to Savannah, Georgia. And there John wanted to evangelize the native people. Uh, or in the language of his time, he wanted to go and convert the heathens. Oh. And, yeah, yes, but of yeah. course. Yeah. <laughs> Sis, I can't believe Dad said Savannah and you didn't pull an office <laughs> reference out because that was my instinct. You want more of that Savannah? It's like molasses <laughs> dripping out of your mouth. I can't do it Thank as you. well as Ed helps. As Andy, yeah. <laughs> I almost made a, an office reference when he was talking about son of a preacher man um, to Jan singing it to her baby. <laughs> Jan singing. But I really yeah, that's what I, I was, thought of too. I was waiting for it. I was waiting for it. <laughs> so anyhow, so they get to Georgia, but when they get there, um, there is such a shortage of clergy that John never really hardly gets to work with the native peoples at all. He en- ends up having to be a minister to um, the colonists there. Mm-hmm. So he never really got to do what he wanted to do, but he he did what he felt like he could do. Uh, and so his ministry actually grew. Actually, church attendance went up while he was there, but he always saw his ministry as a failure because he never really got to do what he headed out to do. Uh, and he didn't really make that big of an impact in the colonists there. But the big thing that happened while he was in Georgia was that he fell in love. Oh, yeah, <laughs> me and it was a mess. So, <laughs> oh, oh. so maybe not. There's all. no way this is as messy as the stuff I've talked about. That is so true. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's it's nowhere near Tudor messy. But. <laughs> yeah, but so he falls in love with this woman named Sophia Hoppy. And he and Sophia were sweet on each other and they would go on whatever dates looked like uh, in 1735 (laughs) in Savannah, Georgia. But, you know, because John was very chaste and very um, serious about his religion, you know, he he was not going to do anything uh, inappropriate. And um, and he just had a hard time making a commitment. He was never quite sure if it was right for him to get married or not. Um, And so he kind of just strung her along. A long, long time. Really? Um, and, and eventually she sort of gave him an ultimatum. Um, and he just he just didn't respond. So she ended up marrying someone else. And John sure. was ticked off. Amen. He, he, did not, <laughs> he did not take it very well. He did not take it very well. And so uh, at one point, um, he refused to give her communion um, because he believed that after she got married, that her religious life really was on the slide and that she okay. wasn't you know, worthy or whatever. Oh um, my gosh. So, uh, so because they had, they had some rules in place that you had to request, uh, to have communion. Uh, and she didn't, you know, she just showed up at church and had not gotten his permission. And so he refused to serve her communion, um, oh strictly out of his own selfish reasons, really. He just made up this whole excuse about her not, sure. um, not requesting just like in a advance. Man. <laughs> Sounds like a man to me. So eventually, um, she sort of instituted legal proceedings, you know, saying that he didn't have any right to, to refer or to refuse communion to Good her. Good for you, Sophia. Uh, and so, yeah, so it, it got a little messy. And so John just kind of um, decided it's time to get out. And so in <laughs> sure. December 1737, uh, he hopped the boat and got back, headed back to England. But an interesting thing happened. Again, this is one of those kind of formative moments in Wesley's life. Again, remember, he was terrified of death, absolutely Mm -hmm. horrified of dying. And so on the boat back to England, this huge storm came up and he was panicked, absolutely panicked. And but he came. There was a group of Moravian Christians on the boat. Moravians were a a, a denomination of these German pietists. Right. And Mm -hmm. and they were during the storm. They were just they were very calm. They were singing and they were praying and he couldn't, you know, he just couldn't figure out, you know, why they weren't so panicked. But that 
that encounter had a real influence on him because he knew that there was something that you could get, you know, but he, he, he saw that they had assurance. And so he knew that it was possible, this thing that he'd been looking for his whole life, even though he hadn't experienced it yet, he began to be very sure that it actually was possible to experience, uh, you know, assurance of your salvation. Sorry, I just watched Sis correct one of your typos in the notes. <laughs> I watched so it happen. I couldn't Live take and in it. person. You know, when I was in high school, <laughs> we had a history teacher who was also a football coach. And he used to use those old uh, overhead projector thingies. It was just like a piece mm-hmm. of plastic you would stick in the overhead projector. And he used the same ones year after year. And everything was spelled wrong. And yes, I used were. to go up and correct the spelling on all of those slides. And the, do you know how much of a creature of habit he was, listener? He was still using those slides when Amanda had him for a teacher. And she yes. saw all the corrections that I made. <laughs> and I found ones that you missed <laughs> where it was still misspelled. Or I wasn't in that class. or you know, Yeah. Like, couldn't help myself. I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> anyway, proceed. So when Wesley gets back to England, one of his sort of um, friends and mentors uh, was this guy named Peter Bowler, who was a German English Moravian bishop slash missionary. So he was from German. He was in England, um, you know, trying to kind of grow the Moravian movement that he was part of. And so he was telling Bowler about this experience. Uh, and how and Wesley, what Wesley was basically saying was he kind of felt like a fraud because he was always preaching to people, you know, about Christian religion and everything that went with it. But he never really because he hadn't experienced assurance for himself. Uh, he just kind of felt like he was, you know, kind of a hypocrite and kind of a fraud. And, and Peter Bowler told him to preach faith until you have it. And then because you have it, you will preach faith. Fake it till you make it, mama. <laughs> Peter Bowler technically coined fake it till you make it. Uh, theology. Love that. <laughs> yeah. Love that, Peter. L- love that for you, Pierre. Peter. Love that for you. <laughs> well, and you know, on the on the heels of Wesley's experience with the Moravians during the storm on the boat, and then having this conversation with Peter Bowler, uh, he was even more convinced, you know, that he could finally get to this place uh, of assurance. So, uh, on May twenty fourth, seventeen thirty eight, it finally happens for John, uh, and so he kind of reluctantly went to this gathering uh, of Moravians for at a, a place called Aldersgate Street. Uh, so here's, this is one of the most famous quotes in Methodism. So I'm just going to read you the quote Do it. from John Wesley's own journal. May 24th, 1738, he says, In the evening, I went very unwilling to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, While he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. So this is... This is what we in the Methodist Church call Wesley's Aldersgate experience. Uh, And we still use that phrase, my heart was strangely warmed, uh, as a way to kind of express what it's like to to have had uh, sort of an experiential encounter um, with the divine. Everything's coming up, John. (laughs) Everything's coming up, John. Indeed. So after this experience, you know, once he had that sense of assurance, he was on fire. He just... Here he comes. You, you could not hold the man down. Yeah. He's in the ring. He's said, swinging. He's swinging. You said here he comes, and I like imagined like a TV opening with like a little song about like <laughs> here comes John. Like that would start the TV show. He's, it's a life. sitcom. <laughs> he needs oh. a sidekick though. Is it is it Charles his sidekick? Yes, absolutely. It's got to be about the both of them, you know. Yeah. And they got to stand shoulder to shoulder and point at each other with their thumbs. Like a who's that girl, it's Jess yeah. moment when you said, here he I comes. I thought you were going to say you picture George Washington walking out in Hamilton. Also love that. <laughs> there actually is a cartoon that, um, like a, <gasps> a, a, anim, a, a drawings, you know, of the Wesley brothers that somebody on the internet <gasps> is doing. 
but they're like in modern, they're reset in modern times. <gasps> and so they look like a couple of hipsters <sighs> sitting around their apartment, but they have, they have the dialogue from Wesley's journal. <gasps> from oh my God. That is, that is so R and J Boz Lerman. Like you have to send that to us. That's so good. That's yeah. They're, they're actually, they did one little animated short. Um, but the rest of them are just sort of like, you know, like the Sunday comics kind of cartoon. Great. I but they're really, they're really badly. clever and and really fun. Yeah. That's great. You have to find that on, uh, on the interwebs by the magical yes. Google machines. So after he had his Aldersgate experience, Wesley went in 1738, he went to Germany to study more under the Moravians. Uh, and he was becoming more and more and more unsettled with the Church of England, with their kind of elitist attitudes uh, and their rejection of common people. The Church of England had become very bougie. Very bougie. Yeah, it's almost like they point. were yep. founded by a king who just didn't want to keep doing what somebody told him to do. Huh, that's interesting. It is almost Super exactly awesome. like that. Yes, it is almost precisely like that. And, and honestly, that's why in the Methodist Church, our structures are much more like the Catholic Church than they are like other mm-hmm. Protestant uh, churches because, you know, the Church of England was really. Catholic 2.0. Yes, it was. <laughs> uh, for Henry VIII. Because he didn't have a plan. He didn't have a plan. Oh. <laughs> no, he had no plan. So he just adopted the same systems and structures. There's a lot of feelings and so about it. A lot of what the Methodists did just kind of carried on those Church of England systems and structures. So it might have been like, you know, Catholic 2.5. Um, but but a lot of a lot of stuff does change over time. But But that's one of the reasons that a lot of our structure is the way it is. Um, because Wesley never wanted, his goal was never to start a new denomination. He just thought that the Church of England needed to be reformed. And that was his Well, that's the same focus. thing that happened with Luther. He wasn't trying to Absolutely. start a revolution. He just thought the Catholic Church needed reformed. Yeah. That's how these yep. things happen. So Wesley was very much like that. Yeah. Um, but that's how, that's how movements start, though. You know? yep. Nobody goes out with the intent of creating a whole new thing. They just want to fix what's wrong with where they are. And that's that's what Wesley was doing. Uh, he, he was almost never allowed to preach in, in any Anglican churches um, because he had become such a rebel that most of the churches had closed their doors to him. And so he was um, looking for ways to get the word out. And that's when um, he kind of got back in touch with his old buddy, George Whitfield, who was already doing a lot of this kind of field preaching, they called it, in the countrysides. Uh, and even though Wesley didn't like the idea, because Wesley was still in love with the Church of England, you know, that was that was what gave him birth and, and informed him. Um, he, he just wanted to fix what was wrong, and he didn't think that it was right to go out into the fields. Uh, in fact, there's, um, there's another cool little quote that, that he said. He said, I could scarce reconcile myself to this strange way of preaching in the fields, having been all my life till very lately so tenacious of every point relating to decency and order that I should have thought the saving of souls almost a sin if it had not been done in a church. That is fascinating. (laughs) All I picture with these two is like, maybe it's because you said rebel, but all I picture is like the cool youth pastor. It's like, (laughs) hey guys, I don't don't operate within the rules of the church. Like, I'm cool. You can talk to me about stuff. Like, I have tattoos and I wear leather jackets. Um, That's George. Yeah, that's George. And John is like like, trying to figure out if he should be like George. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh Whitfield was thoroughly Calvinist. And so, you know, he had a deep belief in predestination. Wesley could never get on board with that. So it's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like... <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know what? I get it. You're tempted. You want to do drugs sometimes. But I'm here to tell you, Jesus is the coolest drug you can do. <laughs> that guy? That would have been Whitfield. That. that would have been Whitfield. Yeah, saying. he would have been that guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but Wesley, Wesley had come to adopt more of um, what we call Arminian theology, which stands in contrast to Calvinist theology, and it's based on this guy Joseph Josephus, I think it was Arminius, developed this theory. Um, and again, these were all kind of in the post-Reformation times that stood against Calvin. John Calvin had this this notion of predestination that basically God was a giant puppet master. Uh, and that free will was a myth, and that certain people were predestined um, for salvation, and other people were predestined for damnation. And and John Wesley could never get on board with that theology. Arminius 
uh, Arminian theology basically said, human beings have free will. God's grace is God's grace, and you are free to choose whether to accept it or not. But it's only by God's grace that you have the power to choose to do that. So, and Wesley used to say that he and Calvin were but, his term was, we are but a hair's breadth apart. The, the width of a human hair uh, is really, he said, we're, we're that close on salvation. We just don't agree on this whole predestination thing. But pretty much the rest of theology we're kind of on board with. So, but he and Whitfield were kind of at loggerheads because Whitfield was a staunch evangelical Calvinist, you know. But, you know, that influence of getting John out of the church and into the fields was really responsible for this movement taking off because Wesley um, began to understand that there were, you know, Whitfield was reaching people that not only didn't have any interest in going to church, but wouldn't have been allowed in if they'd have wanted to. Right. Well, and this is so interesting that he was so opposed to it to start because this is what he becomes like so famous for. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So he starts going around all over uh, England and wherever he could draw a crowd. So he would preach in town squares, uh, out in the fields where people were farming. One of the most famous, he was most famous for going and setting up outside of a coal mine. And so when there would be a change of shifts at the coal mine, he would preach to the miners as they were coming and going from their job. Coal mining is also becoming a recurring reference for us. I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. You know, we're, we're Appalachian people. We're drawn to yeah. very specific yeah. things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is part of our Appalachian heritage, yep. whether we like it or not. And, you know, at that, I mean, as bad as coal mining was, you know, when you guys were doing the Mother Jones episode, and she was involved with the unionizing the miners and everything. I mean, coal mining was a horrible, horrible way to make money. Imagine how much worse it was in the 18th century. No, thank you. you know? yep. <laughs> I mean, it was yep. just an awful, awful way to have to make a living. Um, and so, and John had a huge heart for those folks because he saw that that nobody really cared about him. So he went out and um, would preach to him. And, and Wesley was most famous for his most famous phrase was to, to flee the wrath to come, right? Which sounds really sort of like fire away from the devil. <laughs> yeah fire and brimstone and he was he was a bit of a fire and brimstone teacher preacher and that's what religion was in that day mostly yeah yeah but he also said about the wrath to come that if you were fleeing the wrath to come it would show in the fruitfulness of your life so it wasn't really just about avoiding god being angry at you it was really more about so you would have a, a life full of the fruits of the spirit, so to speak, you know, a life that was marked by love and compassion and uh, all of the, the really good things that we like to associate with Christianity. So he was, so it sounds a little fire and brimstone but the end result was to get people to be well, able to live so. an abundant yeah. life, you know? Yeah. So, so that, this of course uh, made the church of England even more angry with um, our buddy, John. I am all about being mad at the church of England. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was so bad that like other preachers would preach against him in their sermons uh, and they would oh, write letters. Oh, you mad? Oh, you mad? Call call out sermons. Yeah. Keep my name out your mouth. Call oh, out culture. God. I'm not here for it. So yeah, they, they accused he and his followers of all kinds of heresy and creating religious disturbances and spreading strange doctrines. The other thing that Wesley was often uh, also kind of criticized for were his enthusiasms um, Wesley was a bit of a charismatic. Wesley did uh, exorcisms and believed, you know, that he uh, he would speak in tongues from time to time. Oh my gosh! Not you know, not on a regular basis, but um, it happened from from time to time. And um, you know, of course, the Church of England wanted nothing to do that because they were good and prim and proper folks, and all of this stuff was just a little out there for them. Uh, and so, yeah, they would say he's he's too enthusiastic. The devil one is of the playing tricks criticisms. on you and your tongue, sir. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the movement begins to grow, right? Wesley is going all over the English countryside, uh, traveling thousands, you know, hundreds and thousands of miles on horseback year after year. And he really began. He, and he and Charles were still very close. You know, John gets a lot of the credit, um, but Charles was always right there with John. Um, Charles is really most famous as. Uh, a poet and a hymn writer. Yeah, uh, he wrote. We've he talked wrote, about him. Yeah, he wrote thousands of of hymns that are still used in 
not just in Methodist churches, but in in all kinds of denominations. And the rules. Don't forget the rules. No, didn't the rules? Didn't John write the, the rules? The rules are John's rules. John wrote That's the true. rules. Yes. John, John wrote the rules. John wrote the rules for his brother's songs. <laughs> yes. Um, but one of the really curious thing I've always just found this fascinating. It probably was just a natural thing for them in their time. But, you know, singing songs was one one of the best ways to teach theology because a lot of the people they were preaching to were thoroughly illiterate. And so, you know, it's just like sort of in the when we look at Old Testament stories of songs and poems and stuff like that, that's a good way to learn to remember things. Right. That's why we teach mm -hmm. children the alphabet with a song. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Hey, and, that's the only way I remember the French alphabet because of that weird French pop song that our French oh, teacher in God. high school played for us <laughs> that happened to include the entire alphabet. If you're interested oh, in Bob. looking it up, listener, just search ABC Pour, P-O-U-R, Casse, C-A-S-S-E-R. And thank me it later. very worth your yeah. time. You, you will go. be confused, but in a pleasant way. Yeah. So what Charles did to help people learn theology by song was he took a lot of what were basically popular drinking songs from the pubs and taverns of England, uh, and he changed oh, the words to them. So they had these, these tunes. Yeah. They had all of these tunes that, that had very popular knowledge amongst the folks that they would sing while they were basically getting hammered in the pubs. And uh, and Charles said, you know, that music is perfectly good, but the words are um, not worthy. And so he just put new lyrics to, to these songs. But people were able to learn those songs very quickly because they already knew the tunes. And so they were able to kind of learn some theology through singing. So so basically, John and Charles and a few other you know close associates were basically holding this movement together and, and doing the preaching and everything. And so John started to realize that he needed to organize folks because it's more and more and more people across England were beginning to attach themselves to this Methodist movement. So this is where John gets really famous for the way he organized people. He started to commission lay people, lay leaders. Uh, so people who were not clergy, people who were not ordained or even formally educated, um, but the people who had learned really well in these gatherings around the countryside. So he started to appoint them to preach. Um, in, the, in these local societies, they called them. And then um, the societies, so the societies were sort of where everybody in a certain area would all get together, right? So it's sort of like our Sunday morning church service, except they weren't, you know, again, they couldn't go to the Church of England. They, they were, the, the one exception was they could still go to the church to take the sacraments. And, and Wesley, up to his dying day, you know, still felt like that was the appropriate way to take the sacraments until things started. When, when the movement came to America, that started to change a little bit. But um, he was very insistent that you still had to go to the Church of England to take communion, right, or to ba get baptized or to baptize your children or whatever. But otherwise, folks met in these societies. Um, and so they'd get to get these large groups would get together. Um, but the societies, you know, by themselves were not really enough. And so he organized smaller gatherings. So he had Within the societies, you all also had classes, right? And classes were groups of maybe, um, I don't know, 12 to 20-some folks-ish um, that would get, it was basically like a, a Bible study group, right? Mm -hmm. That would get together maybe once a week or twice a week or whatever they would meet um, and for, for a little bit deeper spiritual formation than just what you got out of the, the, the preaching. You would hear preaching in the society, and then you would go to the class, and there, there would be somebody would be a teacher. You'd have somebody leading the class meeting. Um, but even beyond that, um, he formed even smaller groups called bands. And bands were um, divided up by gender. So men only met with men and women only met with women. And they were very small groups of like four or five or six people. And they were intended for, um, for supporting each other just in the business of living on planet Earth uh, and for accountability. And so whenever a band of people would come together, um, the, the first question that they would ask each other is, how is it with your soul? How is it with your soul? How is it with your soul? Yeah. And so they would, you know, it they would well describe, you know, yeah, there, there's a song about that. Yeah. Did Charles write it? Uh, I don't. I don't know. I don't Did know. Charles write it? Know the answer it doesn't matter. I'm going to look it up. <laughs> Somebody's going to have to Google it. Don't worry, it. we will. So as, as the, the bands met and they, so you, the, people would describe no, things didn't. that went really well over the past okay. several days and people, that, things that went really poorly and where they were closest to God and where they were furthest from God. 
Um, and so there was this, this measure of accountability in a good way. A lot of times we think of accountability in really negative terms because we think about punishment, you know, that goes with accountability. But a, a Wesleyan idea of accountability was really just mutual support. It was a loving kind of accountability where you supported each other. And if somebody messed up, you didn't punish them. You just helped them get over it, right? The societies and the classes and the bands <clears throat> were really his brilliance of organization. That's what held that whole movement together. If it hadn't been for that, the Methodist movement probably would never have um, gotten any momentum. But because he did that, so people were people were in community with each other. It meant something to be together with these folks. So that was that was the probably the biggest thing that Wesley did. His Wesley theology. Wesley was not a systematic theologian like John Calvin was. John Calvin wrote his systematic theology into a volumes and volumes called Calvin's Institutes, where he basically tries to figure out what every word and phrase in the Bible means Yikes. and then make it all make sense with each other. Right. So uh, it's, it's a very academic work. Um, I had a Wesleyan theology professor in seminary who said um, you couldn't really trust anything that Calvin wrote because he had, um, oh shoot, what did he have? Some ailment or another that I, just lost off the top of my head. <laughs> kidney stones. He said, John Calvin had kidney Not stones. what I was, was expecting you to say. Man. You couldn't believe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, he was, he was always in pain. Um, he was always angry. And so that's why his theology is so strict, <laughs> but, but Wesley was more of a practical theologian, right? Even though he was deep, he was seeped in theology. Uh, he was not interested in the idea of systematic theology. He, his interest in theology was how does theology help people in their everyday lives. Um, so he was very much a practical theologian. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was how, not, not what does this all mean in the grand scale, but how does it help you live your life on a day-to-day -day basis? Right. So that was sort of a turn in, in Protestant theology, especially uh, to be less systematic and more practical. So, you know, the movement begins to get more and more organized. Um, Wesley continues to travel by horse all over England. So he tries to visit every society. I can't remember exactly whether it was once a year or twice a year, um, but he, he would travel around. So thousands of miles, who knows how many horses the man went oh. through. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, and there was there were descriptions in some of his writings about, you know, he'd, he'd be out on his horse and the weather would just get awful and the wind would be Blow, basically blowing the horse sideways, oh, but he just horse. kept on going. Yeah, like in, just... in the movies, I always get sadder for Me the horse. Me too. Than I do for yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, um, one of the things that that was really different about the the Wesleyan movement, the Methodist movement, was the involvement of women. And I know you guys are real interested Woo. in that, uh, as I am too. Because, and I think a lot of it was because of Susanna's influence. I believe that. that he completely, yeah, he completely understood that there was no reason why women couldn't teach. Uh, so he was he did not hesitate to set women up as the leaders of classes and bands and things like that. Um, but there was a woman named a particular woman uh, named Sarah Crosby, who was one of the early converts to Methodism. And she was a class leader in Darby. And she kept having this dream uh, that Jesus was telling her to feed his sheep. And so she interpreted that as a, a calling to, to be a preacher. Um, and women preachers were, you know, unheard of in that day. Um, so at, at some point in 17, I think it was 1761, she was supposed to teach at one of these class meetings. And again, classes were usually, you know, 12 to 20-ish people. And like 200 people showed up. Wow. Uh, and so she just decided on the, on the spot, um, that because Wesley had authorized her to teach in the class and that there were more people that she could teach, she was just going to preach to them. <laughs> so, yeah, girl. so she did. Yeah. So she started preaching. She writes John a letter and says, you know, here's what happened. And, you know, I'm sorry if I overstepped my bounds, but it just felt like the right thing to do. Uh, and John kind of struggled with it, but he wasn't totally against it. And then a little while later, another woman named Mary Bosenke, I think is how you pronounce it. Sure. Hey, listen, we don't say a thing right on this podcast, so know, we're here for the Russian We've names. never oh, said a God. name right. I was determined that I wasn't going to mess up a name, but this is one that I'm not sure of. But but she's also widely known as Mary Fletcher, because later after this happened, she married a guy named Fletcher. So I think of her as Mary Fletcher. But she started pressing 
uh, Wesley to allow women to preach. And and there were other women who were beginning to, you know, get to the point where they were wanting to preach. And even though Wesley was reluctant, because again, he's a good Church of England priest, and he was trying to obey the rules, even though he was trying to reform, Susanna eventually kind of convinced him to change his mind. Yeah, girl. You know, basically saying, who who are you to say who is and is not called by God to preach? And uh, so he kind of he kind of gave in reluctantly at first, but uh, actually it became uh, a really important part of the movement. And uh, Mary Fletcher became a very, very popular figure. There was another woman. Let me find her name again real quick because I closed down that window from my notes. Barbara Heck was she was one of the first American uh, women Methodist preachers. So she she went walked into a room where people were playing cards. Um, and that was a no-no in, in that time. And she basically told this this fellow who was with her uh, named Philip Embry that you better shut this down and you better start preaching to these people. <laughs> so, Dang! Um, she, yeah. So she, Barbara Heck is actually known as the mother of American Methodism, um, largely because of that. And she, she designed uh, John Street Chapel in New York City, which was one of the very oh, early, wow. you know, Methodist church buildings. Yeah. So she was kind of a big deal. Um, there was another woman, a, a, a freed slave. Yeah, so her her name her given name was Isabella Bomefree. Uh, she was a slave, and she later changed her name to Sojourner Truth. We love yes. Sojourner Truth. Familiar with Sojourner Truth. We love so, her. So yeah, she became a huge figure in the abolitionist movement, yeah. and um, as did Frances Willard, who we have talked about on this podcast yes. before. There you go. Or during the, she was for the temperance, not for abolition, but still. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, these Methodist women were very, very strong parts of the whole movement. Uh, And especially as it came over to the U.S., but but even uh, in England also. Wesley was very charitable. And when he he died, he didn't have a penny left to his name um, because he basically gave away everything that he earned. And he actually made quite a lot of money. He published a lot of books and sold a lot of books in England in his day. And, but he, um, he was very famous for basically giving almost all of his money away. Uh, so he was really an advocate of pre- prison ministry and prison yeah. reform in prison his time. Reform. Yeah, so he would, We love prison reform. He would go to jails and visit prisoners and preach to the prisoners. Um, he and the societies built a lot of schools for orphans. Um, all around. Yeah. So that was, that was one of their big deals. He actually, um, was one of the very early, um, kind of models for, um, the micro loan, what would, what we would now call micro loans where, you know, you kind of help people get on their feet by starting their own business kind of thing. Wesley, uh, because he was such a good organizer, um, was able to organize some things to help folks, you know, in local towns and villages kind of create economies, um, you know, these were hard times in England. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he was, he was kind of, a, he was, so he was very, very benevolent, uh, very compassionate. Like I say, gave a lot of money away. Uh, he was also one of the very first, especially first clergy people in England to advocate for the abolition of slavery. Uh, so he yeah. was a, he was a friend and mentor to William Wilberforce. Great name. He was a member of parliament um, that, that eventually was able to get the English Parliament to outlaw slavery, and so and he was also uh, a friend and mentor to John Newton, who was a good friend of Wilberforce's, who is the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. How they made a movie thing. about yes, William Wilberforce. They made a whole movie called Amazing Grace. That's it is about a William great movie. It's a really good. And there's movie. a there's a really really brief reference to John Wesley in that movie. Late in the movie, there's a very you, nice. you, you almost miss it if you're not listening for it. That cartoon of him just pops up on the bottom of the screen like. When you're watching TV and like, they're like, yeah. cartoon comes in and there's a little thing that says like, tonight at 8, 7 central. And then he like walks out. I love that. <laughs> That's it. So um, as the movement, as the movement continued to grow, people started saying, you know, we really, we just need to separate ourselves from the Church of England. Um, but John and Charles just, they would not have it. They firmly resisted. They always believed that they were a, a reform movement. And that they weren't trying to start a whole new denomination. <clears throat> and it was really only when the movement came to America that that began to, to really take off. Um, Which makes sense. Because it became more and more difficult 
one of the big reasons was that after the revolution, the Church of England was basically no longer welcome in America. So they sort of reorganized under the banner of the Episcopal Church. The Anglican priests who were still around became known as Episcopalians, but they refused to give the sacraments to the Methodists. So some of the Methodists kind of just started doing stuff on their own, which made Wesley furious because he was still, you know, we have a we have a system, we have authority, and and you know, lay people don't have the authority to perform the sacraments. <clears throat> so what he ended up doing um, was that he commissioned Thomas Cook, whose name is spelled Coke, C O K E, but Thomas yes. Cook, mm-hmm. yeah, um, was was an Anglican priest who um, who had been in America, came back, or I, I think Wesley maybe called him back from America, and then and Wesley ordained him as a superintendent which he had no authority. You know, Wesley was such a stickler for authority and rules, um, but Wesley had no authority <laughs> to ordain uh, Thomas Cook or anyone else um, in any role, priest or superintendent or anything. Um, but Wesley, he kind of had this long argument with himself <laughs> of how he rationalized doing it. Charles was incensed. Charles was never on board, kept saying that John was, you know, that that wasn't right, that he wasn't allowed to do that, that he had no right to do it. But John he knew that he had to, right? John, John Wesley was a control freak. He wanted to keep control of everything. But once the movement got to America and started to take off, he no longer could, could keep it in check. It, he just, he finally kind of, he never liked it, but he kind of came to the realization that that's just the way it was Well, at be. least he recognized it and, and went with it instead of going the other way and trying to clamp down. Because that yeah. would not have worked. Yeah. yeah. But he knew he knew he had to have people that could perform the sacraments in America, and he certainly couldn't send every you know ordained person from England to America. So he figured out this this roundabout way to ordain Cook as a superintendent. Cook comes back and he ordains another fellow named Francis Asbury, uh, who was very famous in our neck of the woods as as another superintendent. And then Cook and Asbury eventually start to convince people, not with any blessing from Wesley to call them bishops instead of superintendents. So <laughs> the, Cook and Asbury become the first American Methodist bishops, and then they begin to ordain other people, right? So the whole idea of Cook being ordained was so that he could ordain other people in America to perform the sacraments. You get to perform the sacraments, and you get to perform the sacraments. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everybody look under your seat. Perform the sacraments. There's Welsh's grape juice under there. <laughs> <laughs> so Asbury, Asbury was really famous for establishing the circuit riders, um, yeah. which were you know the 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 Methodist preachers who would go around from village to village, uh, and they would perform the sacraments on a regular. You know, so every preacher had his circuit of however many you know square miles he would cover, uh, and you know once every so often they would show up in your town and that's when you took the sacraments but then again you still had societies and classes and bands they had to have jackets right i yeah, they're better were, of they're the circuit yeah. riders it sounds like a biker game they had to have jackets <laughs> they had jackets and patches yeah. and everything yeah. i love that yes please yeah. so so the circuit ride and that and the circuit rider um, movement was really instrumental in in the push into the frontier um, in the, you know, the exploration of the American West, the Oregon trail. Um, yes. We've so familiar. even, you know, even, we're yeah, <laughs> well, all of that, you know, but, but especially like what, what we would now really think more of as the Midwest, I was making the um, Oregon trail, joke. you know, but that was, like, yeah. like video <laughs> so the circuit riders would, and they would have these big revival meetings and everything, but in between they still had societies and classes and bands that met regularly, you know, within the towns and the little country churches that popped up all over the place. Uh, and so really it was in America that the Methodist church became a, a whole separate denomination. It eventually happened in England also, um, but it took a it little just bit took longer. Me, it took a little bit longer. Yeah. Before they finally kind of separated John, I'll just, just a couple of other fun facts before I wrap up um, the, the talk about John Wesley. I wouldn't call the next one fun, but sure. <laughs> oh no, I'm not on. I'm not, I'm, I'm off. I'm off script now. Oh, you okay. Off script? <laughs> Never. <laughs> who'd have thunk it? So um, John Wesley was very ecumenical in his thinking. Uh, he had a very, what we would call a generous orthodoxy. Uh, he famously said, though we may not all think alike, may we not all love alike. 
Oh, so I love that. He understood that people would have differences of opinions on how they interpreted scripture, on how they practiced their religion. Uh, and that was okay with John, as far as John Wesley was concerned. Um, but it was really this idea that, you know, that people could be united um, by the love of Christ. He, he constantly, after his, um, his Aldersgate experience and his assurance of salvation, um, began to develop a, a theology of grace. That said, you know, eventually we can reach perfection in love, not in actions, but perfection in lo- in love. That we might eventually be able to love each other the way God loves. So that was sort of the the cornerstone of his theology was this idea of perfection. Um, Wesley operated his classes, or his societies, and bands and classes by what they called the three simple rules, which was do no harm, do good, and stay in love with God. So that was sort of the, that was the cornerstone of the Methodist movement was those three simple rules. He wrote, uh, I, I mentioned about his, his publishing. He wrote um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 publications, including books and sermons and letters that he wrote, um, his wow. journal. That's one of the reasons we know so much about Wesley is that he wrote everything down. He, he wow. kept a, I'm having a another running Hamilton written comment. reference moment. I was about to do it too! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he, he kept a running written commentary of his entire life. Nice. <laughs> um, so that's that's one of the reasons why we know so much about uh, everything he did. And, and his his letters and sermons are still considered to be um, integral to Methodist doctrine. So we refer back to, to Wesley's writings uh, a lot in the Methodist church. By the time he died, there were 135,000 members and 541 itinerant preachers in the Methodist movement. So wow. <clears throat> what started as these few kids in the Holy Club at Oxford um, turned into a massive movement that, you know, that still has a lot of influence in, in the world today. You know, obviously church numbers are in decline, um, but Wesleyan theology actually kind of speaks into a lot of places that even they might not think of themselves as being religious or theological. So um, that's, that's a lot, and it's still only a little bit <laughs> about John Wesley. So, when did John die? I don't think you talked about that. John died. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, John died on March second, seventeen ninety one, at the age of eighty seven, um, three years after his brother Charles had died, and he famously is said to have, uh, with all of his family and friends gathered around him, they said that um, with his last breaths, he, he raised his hands and said, "The best of all is." God is with us. Sort of his famous last word. It's a great famous last word. <laughs> every every hero needs famous last words. Mm-hmm. So those were very good ones. Yeah. So yep, that's uh, that is a, a brief annotated version of <laughs> our friend, our friend and yours, founder founder of our movement, Mister John Wesley. When I was in seminary, all of the professors always referred to him as Mr. Wesley. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Wesley. Wesley. This. I like Mr. that. Wesley, that. Yeah, it was really interesting. Huh. Well, thank you, Dad. That was very interesting. Yeah. Thank There's you. a lot of stuff I didn't know. Thank you. I hope, yeah, well, I, I, hope, I hope your good listeners um, find it to be interesting and might find something they connect with in their own lives in the story. I'm glad that everybody knows a little bit about John and Methodists because we, we talk about so them much. so much. <laughs> And it's good that everybody has a little basis now. Growing up a Methodist and what little bit I heard of John Wesley in the churches when I was growing up, I always thought he was kind of a jerk and I wouldn't like. And I think that's not untrue. (laughs) I think there were times when he kind of was a jerk. But the more I learned about, you know, especially like the way he organized and that he really was, he was very strict in, in, in his methods of doing things. But his his theology was all based around grace uh, and that God's grace was available to everyone and that there was nobody outside of God's grace. That's what ticked him off so bad about the Church of England um, is because uh-huh. they just, you know, they no, saw the they common were not folks. Very inclusive. As, yeah, they were not inclusive at all. Uh, and John Wesley was very inclusive. Uh, yeah. and, and again, you know, like his mother, very ahead of his time. Nice. We so, like yeah, I came we do too, but podcast. you know, but yeah. I think the true I think we can all agree that the true hero of this story was Sophia Hockey, who scared him <laughs> right out of town. Or Susanna. <laughs> or Susanna. Susanna was so, a hero. Yeah, but yes. you know. Yeah. 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 So John did eventually he did eventually get married 
Um, but he and his wife had a very distant relationship. Um, it was well, really he was more all over the place all the time. So yeah, and and he really got married more because he thought he should than because he yeah. was ever in love with anyone else again. And so their their marriage was very strained. Um, and really, you don't you don't even read a whole lot about it. And I didn't even bother to look up his actual <laughs> wife's name. name I've got Jay. it in a book somewhere, but it's yeah something I don't remember. It's Mary. But. I'm quite sure. Mary Wesley. Nice. They were only married good for pull. 20 years. Well, what a good, what a positive way to end the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, thank you so much for being here and listening to, to us. And um, if you have topics you'd like us to discuss, if you have questions, if you just want to chat with us, you can email us at rememberthatpod at gmail.com or you can follow us on Twitter at RTTPod. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at the Real Anna Webb and all over social media. I'm all over the internet at, at @acwnerdfighter. Dad, do you have anything you want to plug? I, I am all over the internet at uh, at Joe Webb writes. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being our first ever guest. Thanks for inviting me to be your first ever guest. I feel so honored. And this is a moment that will go down in history. Hashtag and some other blessed. historical Aww. podcast someday he's done it. will hashtag remember this moment. History, hashtag blessed. He's done it. Nailed he's, it. He's gone and done it. Well, Dad, um, we think that you should have the last line. So you know how oh, we I finish all of our line. episodes. Yeah, so we're gonna start it, and then you just say, "Cause do you know what it is? You've listened to our podcast, I hope." Yeah, yeah. Remember that time, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Amanda, you want to do it together? Yeah, we'll do it together, and you'll finish it off for us, Dad. Okay, do you want to count to three? Because we're okay. not gonna get it unless you count. <laughs> yeah, I will count. Okay. I will count. Okay, one, two, three. Until, Until next, next time. time. <laughs> Remember that time. Thank <laughs> you.